0: We'll go ahead and take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. We are coming down the home stretch in our study of the book of Judges. We've just finished the Samson Chronicles in 13 through 16. And just like any home stretch in any race as you're running, this is going to be a difficult portion. We got to bear down, we got to uh, dig deep to get through it. I think that these chapters are the toughest that we will come to in the book of Judges. These chapters might be the toughest that you come to in the entire Bible. They are not tough because they are unclear. They are tough because they are crystal clear about sin, about depravity, on display for every eye to see. Sometimes these accounts are terrifying. Sometimes they are sobering. And sometimes they are just flat out sickening and we will see what sin ultimately does. And I pray that we will always walk away more afraid of sin, more hateful of sin, and more thankful that the Savior has come to redeem us from our sin. Some passages in the Bible are just green lights all the way. Just live like this, act like this, do this. This is a great example. Some are yellow lights. Uh, we've seen some of those in the book of Judges, where there's something to be taken, but don't do everything here. And then some passages in the Bible are just red lights. Stay away. And that's what these chapters, chapter 17 all the way through the end of the book, are. Just don't even draw near to this kind of idolatrous, sinful wickedness. And in fact, immediately when you enter chapter 17, we're going to read through 17 and 18 this morning. When you read it in these opening verses of chapter 17, it's already going to feel different. It doesn't feel very familiar. You sense this difference. It's like when you're driving on the freeway, and as you're driving, everything's totally fine, and then you start to drift a little bit, and you feel those bumps, and you realize, oh, I got to go back. That's what we're hitting. We're hitting the bumps. We've been driving pretty quickly, especially the last sermon, looking at the entirety of Samson's life. We've been driving quickly, and now we're going to hit these bumps on the side of the road. Uh, Instantly, you're going to see something that's uh, absent in these verses. Normally, we see another oppressor has come in, another pagan nation has come in, and they're fighting against Israel, and God raises up a deliverer to fight back to deliver Israel from the oppressors. But in chapters 17 and 18, actually all the way through the end of this book, there is no oppressor from without. We've finished the cycle of judges. There's 12 judges and we finished the last one. Samson's the last judge. We're done with the deliverers that were raised up by God to free the Israelites from their pagan oppressors. Now we see that the cancer is from within. It's growing within. The oppressors are within. And because the oppression happens within We hit lows that we just never thought were even in the Bible. I don't know how many of you have heard sermons on these last chapters. One pastor in the 70s in London said this, in all of my life so far, I've never heard a single reference from pulpit or songwriter or study leader or anybody else at all. Never one single tiny whispered sound that related to the Micah of the book of Judges. That's who we're going to be covering this morning. The reason is that the story is so crazy, so mixed up, so obviously depraved that obviously the Parsons, the the pastors and the clerics are too embarrassed by it to let out a single peep and I don't think I'm being hard on them, not even a bit. Even the writer of the book of Judges is embarrassed by it and as we will see, he finds it almost impossible now and again to keep on going with his account. These are just the lowest points in this book. I don't know if you have a life verse that governs your life. But I would bet a billion dollars that your life verse is not from Judges 17 through 21. So the cycle is over. The cycle of 12 Judges is over. And we actually hit, just by way of uh, introduction to these few remaining chapters, we hit kind of a bookend. If you remember all the way back to chapter 1 and 2, we spent some time introducing the Judges. We spent a while, there were a couple sermons that we had to get to because there are really two introductions to the entirety of the book of Judges. Well, there are two epilogues, if you will. There are two um, outros to the book of Judges, one in chapter 17 through 18 and one in chapter 19 all the way through 21. So there's two introductions and there's two outros. There's two epilogues. There's two appendices for this book. And these two main appendices connected with the book of Ruth give us what I would call the Bethlehem Trilogy. And I just want you to write that down, Bethlehem Trilogy, because you're going to see three different accounts. One is in chapter 17, uh, 17 and 18, one is in chapter 19 through 21, and one is the entirety of the four chapters of the book of Ruth. Three separate episodes. And these three episodes form a trilogy of sorts. And the trilogy that they form is centered around a man in Bethlehem Leaving Judah, Verse 7 of chapter 17. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite. There was a young man in Bethlehem and he departs, verse 8. He's a young man from Bethlehem, he departs. Chapter 19, verse 1. It came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah and they leave. So we have another guy from Bethlehem and they leave. And then if you go all the way to Ruth, uh, finish the book of Judges, go to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife. So three sentences, a man from Bethlehem who's leaving. And those three sentences are the intro to three different episodes that form the Bethlehem trilogy that finishes out Judges and gives us the book of of Ruth. Chapter 17 and 18 is about Micah and the Danites. Chapter 19 through 21 is about Benjamin and the chaos and the moral depravity of Israel. And Ruth is about how God redeems all of it. Ruth is about how God redeems all of it. So we've seen from the deliverer's perspective in the cycle of Judges, we've seen what the period of the Judges look like from the deliverer's perspective. Now, as we finish this book out, it's only gonna take us a couple more sermons to finish it out, but once we finish the book of Judges, we're gonna see chapter 17 through 21 is all about the common man's perspective of what life looked like during the time of the Judges. It's a dark place. It's a depraved place. It's one of the reasons why I said, when we first started studying the book of Judges, I want you, whenever you hear somebody say, man, it, life has never been as bad as it's been right now, I want you to be able to say in your mind, maybe you won't actually verbally say it, but I want you to be able to say in your mind and your heart, "Mm, maybe not so. There's been worse days before in the past, and God was gracious then, and he preserved his people then, and the bad days that are ahead of us, he's going to preserve us as well. So, all that by way of introduction. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning as we look at three destructive elements of false religion and idolatry together. Let's pray. Father, we ask for grace. We are diving into a a larger section than we normally cover. And for that, there are going to be things that are left out. Um, God, you know what we need to see, what we need to hear. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would accomplish exactly what he loves to accomplish in the preaching of his word, which is to glorify Christ. Show us, Jesus. Show us the glory of the redemption that we have in Him as we look at these verses together. And as we pray every Sunday, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We can see things physically, but we need the Holy Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit, to open our spiritual eyes, to give us understanding, to awaken in us fresh affections for Christ, to awaken in us new hatred for sin, to bring about repentance, and to deliver us from our own depravity and bring us safely home to Jesus. So, Father, be our guide. Holy Spirit, be our tutor this morning. And Jesus, be glorified, we pray in your name. Amen. This morning, we will see three destructive elements of false religion and idol Worship. Three ways in which false religion and idol worship destroy us as a people. And I believe as we see it here in the text, we're going to see this in our own lives, in our own struggles. The first way is this Uh, we'll say, we'll call it this way syncretism. Syncretism is a danger in false worship. Syncretism, S Y N C R E T I S I S -S 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 M, to synchronize things together, to place Two things that are differing, that don't quite match up, that don't agree, but to try and blend them together. You could put in there a blending of ideologies, a blending of worldviews. And you'll see this in verses 1 through 6. Now, chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Micah. My Bible says Micah. It's very interesting in Hebrew. His name is actually Micaiah. Uh, Micaiah means who is like Yahweh. Who is like our God? And the Yah, Micaiah, ya is the Yahweh part. So if you drop the Yah and you just have Micah, um, you have who is like. There's nobody like. And you, you lose the name of Yahweh. And people knew that Micah just meant who is like our God. But it's very interesting because in this chapter, we're going to see Micah a number of times. And in verses 1 through 4, The author of Hebrews uses his full name, Micaiah, who is like Yahweh. And then whenever you see Micah's name after verses uh, one through four, his name has been shortened by the author to just Micah, almost as if to say, God's absent from what's happening here. This is what it looks like if you pursue your own religion absent from God. He just drops out altogether. And it's very interesting. The author of Hebrews or the author of Judges here never brings in the name of Yahweh himself. He'll quote it if somebody in the story is saying God's name, but he never mentions the name of Yahweh himself. He just he wants us to see this is what it looks like when people completely abandon their God. So, this man named Micah says to his mother, verse two, "The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you." the ones that you lost, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing. Somebody took these or you lost them and, and then you uttered a curse over that person. Well, behold, the silver's with me. I took it. So, hey, Mom, um, I, I, I took your 1,100 pieces of silver. 1,100 pieces, that should ring in your ear. 1,100 pieces, that's what... Delilah was offered 1,100 pieces per each lord of the Philistines. Some people even go so far as to say this is Delilah. I don't think it is for a number of reasons. But it's very interesting that it's connected there. I think it's connected there for us to think about the Samson story and for us to think we're after the Samson story. And then what the author of Judges is going to do is he's going to say, we're not in the after part of the Samson story. We're at the very beginning of the book of Judges. very interesting what he's going to do in a little bit. But this man, Micah, apparently is a man with absolutely no character or principle because he stole from his mom. And his mom uttered a curse, and he said, I don't want that curse to happen to me, so mom, here's the money. I stole it from you, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And look at what mom says, end of verse 2, blessed be my son by the Lord. That's not what I would say immediately if my kid said, I stole money from you, I wouldn't say, oh, may you be blessed for stealing money. Um we're going to see that she just ends up excusing sin. Uh, There's a reason why Micah is the way he is, and she's one of the reasons why he's the way he is. Obviously, punishing and being hard uh, on your children and and being uh, mean towards them and condemning towards them, that's terrible, that's wrong. But equally as bad is just excusing their sin. And that's what she does. Blessed be my son by the Lord. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So his mom says this, I had given all the money to the Lord. So who cares if I lose it because I had given it all to the Lord. Oh, but I got it back. Thank you, Micah, for giving me the the silver back, but since it's the Lord's, let's go ahead and make an idol out of this uh, money. We'll use it to make an idol, um, to worship Yahweh in the way that we want to. So, verse 4, when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of the silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. Um, I like to think of Micah's mom as the Old Testament Sapphira, Because she says, all of this money is God's. 1,100 pieces of silver is God's. But then she keeps 900 of it and only gives 200 to God. So she's keeping the 900. Again, morality has just been thrown out the window. We're going to use this to worship God by making an idol for him. So, verse 5, the man Micah had a shrine, makes an ephod. We already talked about that with Gideon and household idols, and consecrated one of his sons that he might become a priest. That's not the way you become a priest. You don't just say, we need a priest, let's ordain a priest. It has to be a Levite. it has to be done God's way, but they're not doing things God's way. And that's why verse 6 is the exclamation point on what is happening in these verses. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Mom provides the silver, Micah provides the shrine, his son provides the priest, And this is what happens when there's no corrective. If there was a king, you don't just want a king. If you remember Abimelech, he was a king. He was a terrible king. You don't just want a king. You need a good king. This is what happens when there is no good king reigning to bring a corrective to the people. Everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. a phrase that we're going to see over and over again in these remaining chapters. But I call this... These six, these six verses, I call them syncratic syncretic religion, syncretism together, because what Micah and his mom and his son are doing is they're saying, we want to worship God. We want to worship Yahweh, the one true God, but we want to do it in a way that looks pagan, in a false religion sort of way. We want to mix the two together. Why can't we be like the other nations who have an idol? Why can't we be like the other nations who have a representation of their God in their house? So we'll worship our one true God, but we'll worship it in the way that we want to worship. But devotion that's devoid of divine direction leads to destruction. If you have complete sincerity about your worship to God, but you're worshiping him in a wrong way. However sincere you are in your worship, you're still sincerely wrong in your worship. And so these people in this story are worshiping God. They're just doing it in the wrong way. Now, why is idolatry wrong? We've never really discussed this. It doesn't seem like it has to be discussed. But why is idolatry wrong? Why don't we have an image of our God displayed somewhere in our church so that we can see him. There's a number of reasons why, but one of the main reasons is because there is no image that wholly captures the character of our God. Just think about Moses, uh, Aaron making a, a golden calf, right? Aaron makes the golden calf when Moses is up on the mountain. Aaron makes golden calf that represents power and strength, and that is a representation of our God. He is strong. He is powerful. But where's love? Where's tenderness? Where's kindness? Where's affection? Where's intellect? You, you don't have that in a cow. Um, what about beautiful paintings of Jesus? You guys have seen the beautiful paintings of Jesus where he's you know, this surfer hippie dude. Blonde hair, blue eyes. Looks like you can't hurt a fly. Well, why is that a bad representation. Not only ethnically is it not the correct representation, but it's a bad representation because, yes, we have love, we have peace, we have this guy that looks like he's just uh, the biggest proponent for unity in the world. But what about awe? What about glory? What about anger? What about justice? We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. If you just take one attribute of God, you cling to one attribute of God... And that's all you hold to. You're going to misrepresent the character of God. And that's exactly what's happening here with idol worship. So you say, okay, I get it. I understand that. But that still doesn't apply to me. I don't have a shrine to God in my house. Here's where I believe it applies to us. You ever heard somebody say these words? Or maybe you yourself have said them. I I don't believe in a God that's like that. When you share the gospel with people and you talk about the God of the Bible and you get into conversations with them and they say, I don't believe in a God like that. That's not the God I believe in. And the scriptures clearly speak about God's attributes and they say, no, no, I don't believe in that God. They believe in a God, just not the God of the Bible. They believe in a God and they believe that that God, even from the scriptures, is a God that they want to worship. But it's syncretism. When you have God from the Bible mixed with any ideology at all, mixed with your opinions, your desires, your wants, you fit anything of your understanding into the scriptures, into the character of God, then you are going to have a false god. And false gods, false religions, are made by man to manipulate God, to make him do what we want him to do, saying that God exists to serve my needs. And we become the chief end of God, to serve us. That's syncretism on display. The second danger and destructive characteristic of false religion and idolatry is sacramentalism. Sacramentalism. I know these are big words, but let's break them down. A a sacrament is something that is religious, something that you would do or perform that is religious. And sacramentalism is when you say, I believe in those things that have power to be able to make me good with God, to, to make me clean before God sacramentalism. You'll see this in verses 7 through 13. Now, there's a young man from Bethlehem in Judah. He's of the family of Judah, but he's a Levite, and he's staying there. So remember the Levites, remember they had a tribe, but they never had their own land designation, right? They, the, the land of Israel was split up into 11 sections, And the Levites were just supposed to wander around through the 11 territories of all the other tribes, and they were supposed to be priests to those territories in those specific uh, tribes and and their lands. So he's wandering around. He's staying at this time uh, in Judah. And the man departed from the city from Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he might find a place, wherever somebody's going to welcome him in so he can be a priest there. And he made his journey, and he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, hey, where are you coming from? He said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to stay wherever I could find a place. Now Micah says, this is perfect. Dwell with me. Micah's going to think he just hit the lottery here. He hit the jackpot. Because now a man of God is going to live in my house. And I know God likes Levites. And Levites can talk to God in a different way than other people can. So now I have just a phone call away through my Levite to God. I have unlimited access to God. He's going to love this. And by the way, I think the Levite's going to love this. Because the Levite is wandering around looking for a place to stay. His job is to keep on wandering around to offer uh, the services of the Lord to anybody who needs them to be that intercessor between God and man. And he's just going to find out, I can stay here. I don't have to get up and leave. I don't have to move. So both parties are going to be very happy. Micah needed a priest. And I believe that the priest is walking around with a sign that says, you know, will priest for food, right? He's, he just wants a job. So Micah said, uh, verse 10, dwell with me. Be a father and a priest to me. And I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year. So if we have 900 left over, we can, he can be a priest for 90 years. I'm good. I have a priest forever. Ten uh, shekels a year, or ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes. So a shirt and ten pieces of silver. That's what I'm giving. And you give me uh, the priesthood. Give me access to God. So the Levite says yes. He agrees. Verse 11, to live with the man. The young man became to him like one of his sons. Very interesting because what did Micah say he wanted the man to become like? Become a father to me. I'll submit to your leadership. I'll submit to your governance. And then ultimately what happens is this man has to submit to Micah's governance. He becomes like a son. This is the perfect picture of what happens with sin and depravity. When we think we're getting one thing and then it just gets flipped over on us because sin never delivers the promises that it makes. So Micah consecrates the Levite. Again, he can't do that. But he doesn't anyway. And the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me seeing that I have a Levite as a priest. What he's saying is if I have a Levite, I'll have God's favor. I just need something. Give me something religious and I'll have God's favor. Give me something. Let me do something and I'll have God's favor. He's looking at this priest as if this priest were a relic, a good luck charm, a talisman, a pair of dice, an oracle. He's just looking at this man saying, now that I have this man in my house, God will give me favor. The purpose of this man-made religion that Micah is living out is to access God whenever he wants to so he can get God to do whatever he wants God to do. Religion's purpose is always to try and get God to do what you want him to do. That's what religion is all about, false religion. That's why we don't use the term religion, like we're a religion. I understand what it means for us, but we have a relationship with Jesus. This isn't about trying to do something to garner God's favor, to make him have to do something for me. The gospel is the exact opposite of religion. Religion tries to get God to serve me, and the gospel says I am now a slave of Christ and He is a loving master to me. This is, if you wanted to call it something other than sacramentalism, you could call it utilitarian Christianity. This is just, I go through motions, I I get God to do something for me. My religion works. Now again, I don't know anybody who's ordained a priest in their home, so right now you could be thinking this doesn't apply to me, but I, I believe this applies to all of us. Here's the Christian form of utilitarian religion. How many people have you talked to that have said something to the effect of, man, I got baptized, I grew up in the church, I got baptized, prayed a prayer, and I walked an aisle, and I thought me and God were going to be good for the rest of my life. We don't feel connected. I don't feel like I have a relationship. I did what I was supposed to do, right? I get baptized, God will give me favor. I do something, and that necessitates God now having to serve me. Uh, Let's bring it down to maybe where where we live. I read my Bible this morning, and therefore God's going to bless me, right? Like I open the Bible and I read. Is it a bad thing to open the Bible and read? No. But what's your motivation for opening the Bible and reading? If your motivation is, I just have to do some religious thing, some religious sacrament, I just have to do some religious thing, and then God's going to do something for me. God's going to love me. So for Christians, open the Bible. God's going to love me. For non-Christians, roll the dice and I figure out what God wants. But we use this as a good luck charm. I'll never forget when I went to high school. I went to a Christian private school and played baseball. And we had our baseball bags and we put them in the dugout in these little cubbies. And, and I remember uh, one of my friends, who was a catcher on the team, he pulled out his a baseball bag and as he was pulling it out, a Bible fell out. And I thought, I did not know you were a Christian. <laughs> By the way that you act and the way you speak, I was shocked to see a Bible in his baseball bag. And I picked it up and I said, wow, you're reading the Bible, this is so cool. you have any questions about it? And he said, no, no, I don't read that. So why do you have it? And no joke, he literally takes out his, base, his baseball bat that's underneath the baseball bag, takes it out, takes the Bible and says, just in case it gives me good luck. He's rubbing his Bible on his bat, thinking that somehow this is gonna give him good luck. Sometimes he would have hit a home run, sometimes he wouldn't, but he honestly thought that this book is a good luck charm. Now, we look at that, and we think it's ridiculous, and I agree, but how many times do we do the same thing? How many times do we functionally do the same thing, where we just say, I have to do this because this is what Christians do, and I open the Bible, and I start reading, and as I start reading, I know God's going to bless me somehow. We say words like just check it off the list, right? Just going through the motions. If we do that, we're doing exactly what Micah did. I just need some sacrament. For him, it was a priest. For you, maybe it's, I was baptized. Is is baptism a good thing? Yes, it's an act of obedience before the Lord. But if you get baptized, that does not mean that everything's going to go well in your life. Or somehow you've just brought God's favor upon your life. So, Idolaters and people who invent these false religions, they're not cultivating a relationship with God. These are just means to me knowing God more and loving him more. It's not a means of getting God to do whatever I want him to do. Idolaters are always set up for failure because idols can never deliver, and we're going to see that. We're going to see the failure of idolatry. So we have syncretism, whenever you have a worship for God that somehow lets uh, false ideologies creep in. We have sacramentalism, which is saying there's an aspect of religion. If I just do this one thing, then I have God's favor. And the antidote to both of these is true love for Jesus, knowing his word, cherishing his people. It's having a relationship with him. It's not going through motions. It's not serving Jesus for 10 shekels and a shirt, you know, saying, okay, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do. I'll pay you money so that I can get God's favor great question to ask at this point is, is God to you an end or is he a means to a greater end? Because God to Micah was a means to a greater end. I want to get God to do something that I want him to do for me. So I don't want God for God. I want God for what God can give to me. Is God your end? Is he the end all be all for you? He is everything to you? Or is he a means? If he's a means... I believe that you're going to feel let down by him. If he's a means, if you think I'm going to follow God for what God can give to me, I think you're going to feel let down because he's not going to give you what you're thinking he has to give you, what you're thinking that he owes you. A lot of people feel betrayed or let down by God. They feel like they made a deal with God. I read my Bible today. Why aren't you blessing me? Well, that's never the deal that God made with you. So let's, as A church, corporately and individually, let's be done with utilitarian Christianity and let's fire Micah and his priest. No more of this. I'm going to do something to get God to notice me. I'm going to do something to get God to love me. No, I want God for God. I love Jesus for Jesus. I don't want a relationship with Jesus for what Jesus can offer me. I want a relationship with Jesus because of Jesus. I love him So we have syncretism, we have sacramentalism, and finally we have, number three, subjectivism. Subjectivism. This is an easy one to see, and we're going to see it all in chapter 18. If you have a a false religion that says, we'll take a lot of God and a little bit of our own man-made philosophies and ideas, and then inside of that false religion, you say, I'm going to make up some sacraments that if I do these things, we'll be okay with God. I just need to do a couple things, and then God will love me then you will have moral relativism, you will have uh, morality just tank on you because you're not following the one true God as revealed in the scriptures. This is all of chapter 18, so we'll take it quickly together. In those days, there's no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. So they're doing what they should have done a while ago, which is enter the land, drive out the inhabitants of the land, and have their own territory. Since they didn't do that, they have been rejected from all territories, so they're going around saying, where can we live? So the sons of Dan, verse 2, sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtol. Again, Zorah and Eshtol, that's exactly where Samson was born from. So you're hearing allusions to Samson, and they spy out the land. They search it. And they said, go search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. They lodged there. When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized his voice, that's language. They recognize the language. He's apparently saying Shibaleth instead of Sibboleth. And they're hearing that and they're going, oh, we know this guy. We know where he's from. And so they said, who brought you here? They hear the Levite's voice. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? And he said to them, verse four, thus and so has Micah done to me. That's Hebrew for yada, yada. Micah did yada, yada, you know, and hired me and I became his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. Oh, great. We have a priest. Uh, Can we figure out God's will? Boom, right here. Can we figure it out? And the priest says, verse six, go in peace. Your way in which you're going has the Lord's approval. Doesn't inquire of the Lord. He just says exactly what they want to hear, which is, yeah, you'll have a great time. So the five men depart and they come to Laish and they saw people who were in it living in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. for there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land. And they were far from the Sidonians. They had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshterol, their brothers said to them, what do you report? And they said, arise, let's go up against them. For we've seen the land. Behold, it's very good. This is very familiar to uh, spying out the land when Joshua is in charge. And Joshua and Caleb give a good report. Verse 10, when you enter, you'll come to secure people with spacious land. God's given it into your hand a place where there is no lack of anything that's on the earth. Then from the family of the Danites from Zorah and Eshtol, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. They went up and they camped at Kiryat-Jarim in Judah. I love that place because that's where I lived for a semester when I was in Israel. Um, So it's a very familiar place in my mind. They call out uh, the place, they call it uh, a place of Dan. This is a place where Dan will dwell to this day, but it's west of Kiryat-Jarim. And they pass from there to the hill country of Ephraim. So we're right in the middle. They're supposed to be um, kind of like a sliver in between Israel. And they say, no, we're going to be down here. And then we're going to go up to Laish. And they're going to make uh, their stand up there. So verse 14. The five men who went to spy out the country of Leish said to their kinsmen, do you know that there are in these houses an ephod? Remember, Gideon thought, if I make an ephod, I can speak to God. This is God's clothing. This is, God's, uh, this is what's going to get God's attention. We have an ephod. We have household items in Michael's, uh, in Micah's house. We have household idols here. We have a graven image. We have a molten image. We have everything we need. So consider what you should do. Verse 15, they turned aside. They came to the house of the young man, the Levite to the house of Micah, and they asked him of his welfare. The 600 men armed with their weapons of war, who were of the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there and took the graven image and the ephod and the household idols and the molten image while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod and the household idols and the molten image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said, verse 19, be silent, put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest." Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? And the priest's heart is very glad. And he took the ephod, the household idols, and the graven image and went among the people. So Danites show up. Verse 19 is just a priest napping, right? They just kidnap this guy from out of his room and they take him away. And he says, wait, what are you doing? And they say, time out. Would you rather be the pastor of a tiny little church or do you want to be the pastor of a mega church? And this man, because he's filled with this depravity of greed, says, more people, more money. Give give me the, the, the tribe of Dan. So his heart's glad. Verse 21, they turn and they depart. They put the little ones and the livestock and the valuable ones in front of them. And they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, and the men who were in the house near Micah's house assembled, they overtook the sons of Dan. They cried to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you've assembled together? And he said, you have taken away my gods, which I made. And the priest, you've gone away, and what do I have besides them? So how can you say to me, what's the matter with me? The Danites say, hey, why are you so sad? And he says, you've taken everything. But in the midst of that verse, in the midst of verse 24, he says, you have stolen my gods. Look, if your gods can be stolen, it's time to get new gods, right? If you, get, if you have a God that can be taken away from you, and he even reiterates, this is a God that I made. Not only if your God can be stolen, but if your God was made by you, if you formed your God, then you are the God, and that's just serving you. He says... How can you say, what's the matter with me? So the sons of Dan said to him, don't let your voice be heard among us or else fierce men will fall upon you and you will lose your life with the lives of your household. Don't speak up against this. We took what we wanted. And if you just stay quiet, nobody gets hurt. So the sons of Dan went on their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and he went back to his house. Then they took what Micah had made and the priests and belonged to him. And they came to Laish to a people quiet and secure. They struck them with the edge of the sword and they burned the city with fire. We just see moral subjectivism. Whatever you want to do, that's what you're going to do. And notice they're fighting against their own people. They're not fighting against pagan worshipers. And there was no one to deliver them, verse 28. We've had a deliverer every time, but this time there's no one to deliver them. It was far from Sidon. They had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley, which is near Beth And they rebuilt the city and they lived in it. And they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, some of your Bibles might say Moses, we'll talk about that. He and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made, all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. So Micah ultimately reaps what he sows. He had sown in false religion, in syncretism, he reaps what he sows. And his idolatry in a nutshell is exactly what we see with our own false worship. If you worship a false god, it can be taken away in an instant. But here at the end, Verse 30, the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image up in the north, the northernmost part of Israel. And they said, this is where you worship God. And one of those people is Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh, my Bible says Manasseh. It should be Moses. ESV, I believe, translates it as Moses. It should be Moses. Moses and Manasseh are just one letter different. The earliest records that we have have Moses, and later records have Manasseh. It's very interesting. Why would a scribe add an N to get the name Manasseh instead of leaving it as Moses? And I think that you can see it. They're reading what's happening to Moses' grandson, and they're saying, there's no way that a guy who's the, in the family line and the grandson of Moses, there's no way he did these bad things. So we're going to say it's Manasseh. We're not going to say it's Moses. They add the end because they're so shocked that this guy, who is the son of Gershon, was the son of Moses, could actually be doing these things. And by the way, since we know that this is Moses, we know that this is the grandson of Moses, then we know the time period of when this is happening. We, we think, as we're reading chronologically through Judges, we think that as we're at the end of Judges, we're way far away from Moses, we're way far away from Joshua, um, coming into the land to conquer, we're way far away that. But when we see this as Moses' grandson, we know we're actually right at the very beginning of Judges. This was happening all along throughout the book of Judges. Again, that's why I say we've seen the deliverer's perspective, and now we see common man's perspective. Dan has lived out their sinful depravity. They're killing innocent people. They're stealing things that don't belong to them to set up false worship as a tribe in the northern part of Israel. Their wickedness is so wicked that they are not mentioned in the book of Revelation. You remember in Revelation when the 144,000 are present, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel? Dan is excluded from that list. And Joseph's son is put into that list. Dan's excluded because of their wickedness and because of their idolatry. They were the center of idol worship for hundreds and hundreds of years of years. Notice their idol worship doesn't go from worshiping and worshiping God to worshiping nothing. They go from worshiping God to worshiping God and something to worshiping God and something with sacramentalism thrown in to now I'm worshiping this idol that's completely removed from who God is. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, when a person stops believing in God, he doesn't believe in nothing. He believes in anything. The heart of man has to believe and trust in something. And he who dethrones God from the throne of his life doesn't mean that he believes in nothing. He's now open to believe in anything, anything that is right in his own eyes. So that's what we see in this entire chapter. Anything that's right in your own eyes, you start doing. That's why John will say in 1 John, at the very end of John's little letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, He says, Little children, guard your heart. Guard yourselves. Keep yourselves from idols. And again, I don't think that we as a people will be struggling with idolatry in the form of making a shrine in our house. We're going to be struggling with idolatry in the form of believing and following a misrepresentation of who God is. He's revealed himself clearly in this book. That's why false worship is many times, so close to being true. There's so much truth inside of false worship, and then there's just a little lie. But the little lie that permeates all of that false worship makes the entire thing destructive, devastating, and depraved. False religion subjectivizes all morality. If you are God, you get to dictate whatever you think is right and wrong. Again, I hear this all the time. Just even this last week, I was talking to two individuals um, who told me, you know, professing believers, uh, a guy and a girl, you know, we've been praying for a long time and we really feel a peace about moving in together and living together. Sleeping together is totally fine. We've, we've prayed about it. We've brought this before God. We've prayed about it and we really feel a peace. What do you think? And I just graciously walked them through, I don't know where your peace is coming from, but it ain't coming from here. Because this is clear. And if you have a God that's allowing you to sin, then you've made a false God. You've made a God that's not a true God. And that God might be completely satisfying to you, but that God doesn't exist. And it won't be ultimately satisfying, and it will not save you. This kind of religion seeks to control and tame God, to remake him in an image that we are comfortable with. It's easy, it's comfortable, but it will never bring lasting satisfaction, it will never bring blessing, and we end up worshiping a very comfortable, however non existent God. So, we finish out these two chapters briefly in conclusion. Unlike the stories of Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, Micah's story is not in the book of Hebrews. (laughs) Micah's story does not show up in Hebrews 11 as hey, go do this, be like these people. Micah's story is simply a chronicle of pure failure. Sometimes the stories that we read are straightforward and it's obvious. There's a blessing inherent in obedience. There's uh, curses that are inherent in disobedience. This is just a dark passage where there's simply no salvation. There is absolutely no salvation. The family is sincere about their false worship and they're sincerely wrong in their false worship. So just two things. Number one, I want to ask the question, how do you get this way? And number two, I want to ask, what do we do instead? Number one, how do we get this way? We get this way. We let false religion and idol worship creep in if we let three things happen in our hearts. Number one, if you're ignorant of the scriptures, if you're ignorant of what God's word clearly teaches, then you're going to start following God, but in a wrong way, in a way that he has not commanded. If you're ignorant of the scriptures, if you begin to worship like the world and love the world, that's number two. If you begin to worship like the world, let the world creep in. That's what happened with Micah. I worship Yahweh, but I want to worship Yahweh in the way the world worships, with pagan idols. If you're ignorant of the scriptures, if you worship like the world, if you want to be like the world, and if you reject God's standard completely, if you just ultimately say, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but I don't, I don't want to follow that. That's not the kind of God I want to follow you will start falling into these three S's of false religion and idol worship. Now, what do we do differently? What do we do differently? Instead of being ignorant of the scriptures, we need to know them. Instead of worshiping like the world, we need to worship the way God's taught us to worship. Instead of rejecting God's standard, we need to accept it. But here's where I want you to turn, and we'll end here. 2 Timothy chapter three. 2 Timothy chapter three. I believe 2 Timothy... Chapter 3 gives us a perfect picture of what was happening with the Danites. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Why are they all those things? And if we had time, we could actually go back and see how these things happened in the story of Micah. Why are they all those things? Verse five, because they hold to a form of godliness, yet deny its power. They hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They look religious, they look spiritual, but they only hold the outside form, the do's and don'ts, not the motivation inside. They read their Bibles, they do things, but their heart has not been changed because they don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus. So how do we not go down this path like Micah and the Danites? Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Do you love him? Syncretism, sacramentalism, and subjectivism all miss a love for Jesus. It's religion, but it has no power. Because the power inside of our religion is not religion itself. It's not external deeds. It's our relationship with Jesus and a new heart that he gives us. So what should Dan have done? What should Mike have done? It tells us at the end of chapter 18, God was in the house of Shiloh the whole time. God was there. He made himself available. And even in the depravity of chapter 17 and 18, we still see grace. God was there for anybody who wanted to be with him. God was there for anybody who wanted to follow his word and worship him and trust him and love him the way that he's supposed to be worshipped and loved and trusted. He was there the whole time. He never abandoned them, even though they abandoned him. So, what is the thing in your life about which, if it were taken away, you would say, like Micah, you've taken my God? You've taken away everything. What else do I have? Where can I go in my life now? I have nothing left. What is it for you? Because that should be Jesus, right? That should be Jesus. I mean, listen to this sentence. If Micah were to have said, I worship Jesus, and you've taken Jesus away. I have nothing left if you take Jesus away. If it's Jesus, he can't be taken away. That's what Jeff just read this morning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you follow Jesus, you have a hope that's secure that will never be removed. And if Jesus is everything to you, then you'll never wind up like Micah. Anything else in this world can be taken away from you. But nobody can take Jesus away from you. And if he is your love, if he is your greatest trust, if he is your greatest treasure, and you say, he's all I have, he's all you need, and he will keep you, He will satisfy your soul in a way that man-made religion could never do. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us about the dangers of false religion. And so we collectively want to just say no to our own man-made views of you. That's why we study the, the Bible. You've spoken clearly, and we want to We want to follow you for who you have claimed to be, who you are in reality. We don't want to make up our own ideas of who you are. That would not glorify you. So Father, even as we sing, help us to confirm all these truths to our hearts. That we would find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. And that anything that we do that looks religious, would be done just as a means to an end of getting more of you. Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you more, even in this moment.